Awesome. And we are here today with Vila Bianca, one of my favorite human beings on planet Earth, the notorious VLB. <laughs> hey, I'll take that. That's awesome. Has, has anybody <laughs> called you that? I No, actually, okay. that might be a first. I, I was I I thought of it, so I'm gonna just <laughs> claim it. I don't okay. know if you know this is one of those things where I like heard somebody else say it or something. <laughs> But I don't think so. It's think... really hard to do a pun of my name that I haven't heard yet, but that okay. one is good. I okay. like it. <laughs> um, for those who uh, don't know, uh, V is very active as an activist and as a content creator. Uh, you are uh, one of the regular hosts of Talk Heathen. You've got mm -hmm. your own sort of, gosh, like network of projects with Say La Vie, with mm -hmm. How to Skeptic. Um, you're on uh, Secular Sexuality all the dang time. What am I missing? <laughs> um, at this point, I think you've got it pretty much covered, although I am going to be picking up some new stuff, um, hopefully. Uh, so yeah, I'm on Talk Heathen and Secular Sexuality. Those are both ACA produced shows and those air every week, Thursdays and Sundays. I also do a Say La Vie live stream every Thursday and I put out about one animated long form kind of essay video about skepticism per month, trying to get that up to two per month. Awesome. Um, another thing that I'm gonna be doing is uh, doing a series of videos reacting to The Case for Christ by Lee trouble. I saw you pinned a tweet with that a while ago. Yeah. And I've been waiting to see what would happen with that. I need to find some room in my schedule first. Um, but once that happens, I'm very excited about it because I generally call myself the anti Lee Strobel yeah. since <laughs> my journalism career led me out of Christianity as opposed to into it. So I'm excited. He's my nemesis. He doesn't know it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's all that. And then once uh, my partner gets his show up and running again, then I'm going to be a regular on that as well. So awesome. yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah, you are tireless. I, I I'm always I, I see you all the time. Um, you cannot sort of escape me. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, there couldn't be a better segue of uh, talking about Lee Strobel. Um, to I, I wanted to ask you how because um, your background is in journalism and uh, and in publishing, where fact mm -hmm. checking these are important concepts. Um, I should say sort of your educational and professional background. There's a lot more background to uh, to your your story that. We're not going to get into here. Uh, if people yeah. want to see that, um, there's you did it like a two part video with uh, with Matt Dillahunty talking a lot about that stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not sure to what extent you're aware of this, but there seems to be a problem with misinformation. Uh, no. Yeah, and and I sort refuse of a lack to of that. That well, might that, be your reality, but that's not my reality. I I so on Monday I uh, I was on. Um, Ethan Michaels uh, call and show the perspective and had a, a conversation with a, an alleged psychic that was such a train wreck. And what you just said, this idea of your reality, your truth mm -hmm. um, came up. And I, I, I wanted to ask you um, sort of broadly, um, yeah. when you hear the term fake news, mm -hmm. um, what, what immediately, what's your, what's your sort of like visceral response to not fake news as it actually is, but more people responding to things by going, that's fake news sort of reflexively. Right. Right. Um, it, it, my first reaction is to just go, God, to hold them. So because 
right during the 2015 campaign, I was waving that red flag all over the place. You will see it if you go through like Facebook posts back in the day. Like I was just like, they're making things up and then they're turning it around and saying that other people are making things up and Trump is using this term fake news and this is dangerous and we should not be like entertaining this idea. And the fact that it's just become a word that people say now, you know, like to dismiss whatever they want is so incredibly frustrating because yeah. I saw this coming and it's worse than I could have imagined. As a person with a background in journalism, what advice would you give to people who may have a general distrust of, you know, you hear people say like, I don't trust mainstream media as they watch like Fox News, which has like the largest market share, right? Right. So what? how do you, if you're talking to somebody about how to sort of vet information that's out there just in the public sphere, you know, how do you approach that with people? Yeah. Um, it's kind of, and I don't want to put journalism in the same realm as like the hard sciences, right? But there is this correlation between, oh, well, just use common sense. Mm. Why, why, why would we assume that a scientist knows things that I don't know? And it's the same with journalists, at least the ones who are serious and actually going to, you know, school for these things. Uh, you take four years of classes to get good at doing this, at least, right? And then you go out into the field and you are an intern and you, you work with papers and it, it is a whole entire skill set. And this is kind of what inspired me to do How to Skeptic in the first place was I realized that I was benefiting from four years plus a lot of in the field experience that other people I just kind of took for granted were also doing or also had that access. Mm. And so, yeah, there are some very basic things that I can tell you right now, but I do want to stress these people, when they're accurately trained, when they're doing this correctly, are very skilled at what they do. Getting accurate information is their entire job. And when you say that they're bad at it, imagine somebody coming to your place of work and just being like, oh, I could do that. You're doing that really poorly, like with yeah. no background, no training. So a couple of, um, a couple of good uh, basics are when you read something, uh, pay attention to what it inspires in you because your body will react to a piece of news before your cognitive function does, right? Mm -hmm. There's this, this concept of type one and type two thinking and type one thinking is very uh, fast and emotional and uh, loaded with bias. And then type two is what we've been able to develop now that we're out of you know situations where we need to rely on type one thinking to survive, and that's slower, that's more analytical, that's more uh, you know focused on rationality and weeding out those biases. So you will react in a type one thinking space to a piece of news, whether it's good or bad, right? Oh, this is exactly what I wanted to hear. Right. Everything's coming together. Or, oh, this is terrible and so much worse than I thought it ever could be. Both of those require more information, right? Your reaction to a thing does not make that thing true. And so if you are reading something and it inspires any kind of emotional response in you, that's a good little flag that your own body, your own mind has raised to say, hey, 
you might want to do more research into this because mm. you might not be getting the whole picture because very rarely is everything amazing or everything terrible, right? Usually it's somewhere in the middle. It, well, and you use an interesting word. You use the R word. You said research. And yes. there seems to be some confusion about this word. Um, when, like I've got friends who are, uh, you know, like anti-vaxxers, for example, people that I, that I you know, have yeah. known for a long time and, and I've watched them sort of do research on, you know, like Facebook and I'd be yeah. like, oh, like somebody said this thing. So it's a hundred percent true. It now um, counts as research. Yeah. Right? If I looked for it, it is research. What, what, where, where's the distinction between research and just consuming information? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I see do your research or like do your own research in the yeah. same vein as fake news. Yeah, it's fake news. Look it up. Like right. that person instantly has been disqualified as being taken seriously, which is so frustrating to me because there are such things as fake information, right? There are such things as doing your own research and becoming more aware of the world around you. And now those terms are kind of tainted by this mindset of gullibility, really. Mm. So it is frustrating. And I knew exactly where you were going with that. Um, there is a difference between consuming information and doing research. Research is an attempt to be as unbiased as possible while doing, uh, while digging through sources that are accurately cited. So that's the baseline, I would say. So you can consume information thoughtlessly. You can put on the news, the channel you like most. You can go to the Facebook pages you follow. You can watch the same YouTube people over and over again. And you're not really thinking about, okay, what's the other side saying? How do I weigh these disparate pieces of information? Uh, where is this person getting their sources? You're just kind of letting that information filter in. Yeah. And that's fine for entertainment, I guess, right? Like everybody needs to chill out and just watch something every so often or read something. But research specifically is asking yourself, who is saying this? Why are they saying this? What's the other side saying? Where are the discrepancies? Can I understand these discrepancies? And what does that say about my worldview and how it shifts? So it does become a lot more intentional, not just to prove a point, right? You're not Googling, why is my side right? You know, and then just yeah. pulling the first thing on Google. You are doing a deep dive into both sides or Often there's more than two sides, right? And synthesizing that information and then presenting that accurately cited. So what you'll see on my uh, How to Skeptic videos, I will cite in APA style every single resource that I've used during the creation of that video in the description of my video. So anybody who is curious about how I came to these conclusions can go and read full primary source papers by credentialed scientists um, just right there in the description. So a good way to determine if you're thinking about doing research, if you're looking at maybe a source and you're like, is this, is this a valuable source? Do they know what they're talking about? Or can I vet what they're talking about myself? A good way to determine if you can do that is to look for their sources. Right. And if they give you them and you can look through those primary sources and those are valid, then that's a really great point towards that person being a reliable source of information. If 
people are making claims and they're not linking to things or they're linking to things that are third party interpretations of primary sources or opinions pieces, right? Then that's a good clue that maybe they were engaging in that first kind of quote unquote research, which is Googling, why is my side right? Do you think there's an incentive problem? I mean, because with, it seems like in, in our sort of information economy, the incentive isn't to make the most sense or be the most accurate or most credible as much as it is to drive clicks and views and things. Um, so, I mean, a lot of what passes as, you know, quote unquote journalism um, isn't, and it seems to be driven by trying to generate the emotional responses you were referring to earlier. Mm -hmm. um, how, do you have any thoughts on how to fix that incentive problem? That's, that's <laughs> like a big, that's a huge Oh, it's huge. <laughs> Thank you, BuzzFeed. Um, yeah, uh, I think, honestly, I'm not sure how to fix it, but I do have possibly a controversial take on this, which is it is totally possible to do that with accurate information and to, to drive clicks with accurate information. It's sure. just harder. It's lazy to do that on that surface level where all you're doing is trying to elicit that emotional response. But you absolutely can. And I've seen other people, other content creators do this all the time. That's what I try to do. You can present accurate, middle of the road, good information in a way that is entertaining. You, you absolutely can. It's not a zero sum game. You just need to be committed to doing that. And it does take more time. It's funny. You said middle of the road. And it reminded me of something. Um, I, I There was a book that I read earlier, well, last year, because it's 2021. So we're all safe now, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and it was Andrew Morantz was the, the journalist. Um, I can't remember the name of the book, but it was about him um, exploring the the world of sort of like online far right trolls and, and uh, in the lead up to the last, um, uh, well, to the, the election that uh, Trump lost the popular vote, but won the electoral vote. And uh, he talks about the Overton window. He talks about this idea of yeah. the of what's acceptable and what's considered the middle of the road and how yeah. it shifts. Um, do, I, I'm not sure it's it's valuable to to seek middle ground sometimes. And I I, I think you'd probably would agree. Absolutely. Yeah, it is actually a an informal fallacy to always seek the middle position. Um, there, there are situations where there is only one side that is telling the truth, right? The the middle ground position between the earth is a globe and the earth is a is flat is right. not well, half the earth is a globe and the other half is sure, flat, right? Sure. So yeah, there is definitely the Overton window is very, it, it's an insidious thing to me uh, because we seem to be trending much farther right recently. Yeah. And so the Overton window all of a sudden becomes people like Biden, <laughs> who people are like, oh, he's so far left. Right. No, he's still in, he's he's far, he's right. Like he is conservative. And the only reason we think that he's this far left person is because the Overton window has shifted into a place where right outside of it on the right side is basically like white supremacy, neo-Nazism. So yeah, it's a it's definitely an issue. And that doesn't just happen to politics, right? That happens with everything, right? And so yeah, when you are looking at information, uh, middle of the road 
tends to get you away from extremist views, right? So like if, if someone's saying, oh, everything's terrible or everything's wonderful, that's suspect for a whole different reason, right? That's probably biased reporting, blatant propaganda. Looking for things that are more middle of the road and more, you know, centrist, I guess, will get you away from the propaganda aspect, but that by no means means that it itself is unbiased, right? Yeah. Because it's impossible to not have a bias. That's something I try to drill into everybody who asks me about bias in journalism. It's like, yes, in the same way that scientists say, we understand that everybody is biased and therefore we need to vet experiments and run tests and try and replicate the process. That's how they control for bias. Journalism also like understands that there is a bias and it's inherent in just the way you use words, right? And where you put the comma will interpret an entire sentence in a specific way. And so the goal of editors at these journalism, uh, at these uh, news organizations uh, is to control for a whole other kind of bias, which is more verbal and written. So yeah, it's impossible to be without bias Assuming that centrist p- people are without bias is very dangerous because yeah. then you become susceptible to whatever it is they're saying because you think, oh, well, this is unbiased. And of course, we know that's not true. Yeah. With the uh, the middle ground thing, the, the illustration that I like to use with people is, um, you know, say, you know, if, if Hitler comes along and wants to kill six million Jewish people and you're like, I don't want to kill any Jewish people then being like, all right, well, the right thing to do is then to kill 3 million. We'll split the difference and it'll be, right. you know, that's, you know, that'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, that's, I'm not saying Joe Biden is the equivalent of killing 3 million Jewish people, but oh you know, Let's hope but not. I'm pretty that sure you said a, that. that I, right. I, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oh man, it's interesting. Um, let me ask you the, the, the four questions that we ask all the people who come on my little channel here. Um, the first one is, uh, because skepticism and epistemology is kind of my whole thing. I, my hey, bias, me too. right. <laughs> my bias, when I look at like every problem in the world right now, I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm interpreting it through this lens of like, well, everything I see seems to be a symptom of failures of critical thinking and skepticism. Um, failures of empathy and compassion also factor in quite a bit from mm-hmm. what I can see. But, um, so if you were to identify one key feature of sound epistemology, if you could wave a magic wand and give everybody one tool to Mm. enhance their critical thinking, what would you give them? Now, I have a a follow-up question for this to to better clarify, because I have one answer and another one I'd need to think about a little bit more. So is this waving a magic wand and imparting a piece of knowledge into everybody's head, or is this changing a structural element of how we live our society that would then create more critically thinking people? I would say whichever you think would be more useful. Okay. In that case, I would invest in critical thinking and philosophy classes in high school. Um, I think that public education is one of the biggest tools that we have to uh, turn the tide here uh, in in a way that is as unbiased as we can be, 
right? We don't need to go in and preach a certain religion or a certain outlook or uh, only fund certain schools in certain areas. What we need to do is make sure that every child who is in school has the opportunity to learn critical thinking because my entire life turned on its head the first time I took a philosophy class. Mm. And that was a biased philosophy class in a Christian classroom. Um, and it's still just blew me away and, and made those first critical connections. So I would say that probably the first thing I would do is just magically fund critical thinking classes in every high school schoolroom. It's funny you mentioned that about the, the philosophy in a, in a Christian school. I, uh, I have a friend who is a philosophy professor at a Christian college in California, Oof. and uh, he's brought me in twice to be like the guest atheist to talk to the, the students nice. and freak them out. And um, it's uh, it was a good time. Um, you come in with little like horns on your head and just like go full. You know weird? So back then I was the president of the Secular Student Alliance at my college at San Diego State University. And um, I was so much more like angry. I was much newer in my, my deconversion mm -hmm. uh, journey. And uh, I, I was kind of like an asshole to these, to these people. <laughs> And so I, I, I would love to get another crack at something like that <laughs> right, to, to take a totally different approach and just try to be more, you know, Socratic. But um, how would it how would it take shape in your mind with, with teaching critical thinking to, to the school children? Um, mm -hmm. I, I've said that I I wish that uh, like Carl Sagan's Demon Haunted World was like mandatory reading for every sixth grader in the United States. Yeah. But what would it what would it look like in your mind? Is it is it comparative religion? Is it logic? Is it like how how does that break down in your in your? Um, I would say probably logic one hundred and one, probably focusing on informal logic though, not like. I mean, formal logic, of course, has its place and is the the wellspring from which all of this flows, of course. But informal logic is actually a lot easier to grasp, first of all, and so a lot easier to put into a curriculum that would be engaging and, you know, impactful. Mm. But also it does talk very much about real life situations, right? So instead of uh, math with letters, you get, hey, this is a, this is a fallacy. What is that? And mm. why is it not good? Um, what are the six most common ones and where do they come up? How do you parse a paragraph to make sure that there are no fallacies within it? Uh, all of this more um, reasoning and informal logic based thinking, I think would be would be preferable. I, I, I like the idea of treating them like Pokemon, like you got to catch them all, you know, <laughs> nice. with your fallacies, you know, make it make it snappy for the kids. Nice. Um, I like it. When you're engaging, this is question number two, when, mm -hmm. when you're engaging uh, just with the world, when you're living your life, where do you most obviously uh, see bad epistemology manifesting? Oh, that's a, that's, I am well aware of my bias based on the exposure that I have online and mm -hmm. based on the exposure that I've submitted myself to <laughs> on, online. Um, for me, honestly, and this is a, this is a smaller subsection of a larger issue, obviously, mm. but the way that people who are non-religious, so whether they have deconverted or whether they uh, have never been religious, relate to issues around sex and gender. Mm. 
And I know we talked a little bit about not getting into the whole gender thing as much because that's, I mean, it tends to be my, like the bugle that I blow. Um, but yeah, uh, the average conversation that I have with the average non-religious person is still very steeped in a lot of the same biases, a lot of the same assumptions that, and, and, a, and a virulent lack, like, like, they, they try to not understand. Like it becomes mm. almost a point of pride that oh, I just don't get it. It's just too weird for me. I just, I, I, I won't look into this anymore. Um, so it does become quite an issue there. And again, this is just the conversations that I have put myself into based on the kind of person that I am and what I choose to do with um, my time. Do you? So your exposure to this is much deeper than mine, but there, there are some, uh, some people who come to mind that are prominent, you know, quote unquote skeptics and, and rational professional, rational people who um, have had some just sort of like astoundingly bad takes on the subject of, of sex and gender. And um, <laughs> I'm like, there's one name that's just like, blaring in my head and I'm not going to say it. <laughs> but um it, it seems to me to be the problem of a person who is intelligent who thinks of themselves as being rational taking a little bit of information and thinking that they've got the whole the whole thing figured out mm-hmm. um which is a, an absolute failure of skepticism um and critical thinking when that yeah. happens um is, so do you <laughs> Do you feel like this is like a a good diagnosis for the problem or do you think it's more, I I, want to, you know, the quote that's like, you know, don't attribute to to malice what can be explained by stupidity, that kind of a thing. I have tried to do that for the last four or five years. And at this point though, like, I don't know if I agree with that quote anymore though, because at this point, the level of stupid almost outweighs malice. Like, as being the worst option. <laughs> well, this is interesting because th- th- there was something that I, I thought about what I wanted to talk to you about today. And the first thing that came to mind was, and I talked about this a little bit, was where like the limits of conversation are. Um, you know, I like I had I've had Aaron Ra on on here and I I like I love Aaron. And um the <laughs> the way that he talks to creationists, where it's like, listen, we you we've got like four consecutive decades of scientists dunking on you guys publicly. So at this point, if you're still, you know, carrying the torch for young earth creationism, you're, you're lying and it's dishonest. And he takes that hard stance on it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I I get it. Um, do you feel like that's where we are with, with sex and gender issues in the skeptical community of being like, it's like the equivalent of like (laughs) young earth creationism. You know what? I wouldn't say so. No. Um, I think that I'm still a little, I'm a much more lenient in that regard, because we have a whole theory of like a whole body of evidence, an entire theory built upon so many different components that explains away young earth creationism. One of the challenges is that because of the stigma around sex and the erasure of the concept of gender, we don't even have the scientific studies necessary to explain everything. We can explain more than we thought initially, but there's still so much work to be done. So it still is very much an emerging field that needs to be updated and needs to be supported and funded. And 
part of my hope is that by making things more acceptable to talk about, that by uh, that's, that impact will be that it becomes less taboo and therefore more scientific research can be done. Yeah, I think for me, it's if I could diagnose these people as they seem to like to diagnose other people, <laughs> it would be with an incomplete de deconstruction. Okay. Right. It would be this theory that, oh, well, I answered the biggest question, which is, does God exist? And I answered that one right. Therefore, I must be really smart and I don't have to think about anything else ever again. Right. Or I'm clearly not a religious person. Therefore, no religious ideas impact me. And that's absolutely not true. If you grow up in a country where a specific religion is dominant in the culture, you will be impacted by that religion, whether or not you believe it. You will be internalizing a whole lot of stuff. And if your goal is to actually be a skeptic. If your goal is to be somebody who is actually uninfluenced by a religion, you have to break down every single piece of your assumption and make sure that it's not being influenced, right? And, and fact check it and research it and come back and do it again. And it's exhausting, yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's what is required. So whether or not you believe in a God, really has very little impact on whether or not I consider you a skeptic, right? Like absolutely. Yeah. You can no. believe in a God and be a skeptic about everything else. And I would rather hang out with you than somebody who doesn't believe a God exists, but will buy wholesale into a bunch of other really unsubstantiated shit. Yeah. Sorry. No, because I mean, it drives me nuts. The, the sort of like overestimation of, of one's own intelligence mm -hmm. and, um, and just all of the problems that that opens opens us up to when we when we and I think we all do that at least in some areas of our lives. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I think that the experience of being a skeptic is sort of continually confronting that and being like, oh shit, I I didn't know, I didn't know exactly. And um, there's no there's no timeline necessarily, right? I'm not saying you have to do all of this within the next six months or, you know, you fail at skepticism or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we are constantly doing this. It's a lifelong process. And I don't think I can point to anybody, let alone myself, who has actually done a complete deconstruction. Right. But we're always trying. And that's the point. And if somebody yeah. comes to you with a new idea that is challenging and might go against those initial type one feels of, ooh, that feels weird and wrong. Again, the instinct should be, I'm going to go research this myself. I'm going to go do more studying and educate myself on this topic because I had this initial reaction and I'm not sure where it came from. Yeah. Yeah. For people who want to know more about the, these different types of, of thinking and different processes and uh, to learn more about cognitive traps and biases, um, I know I'm a dead horse with this. There's a, there's a handful of books that I'm constantly recommending, but go read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's really good for that. It's a little dry, but it's, it's good. Um, so the third question is, where are you irrational? Where do you see bad epistemology manifesting in your own life? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I am actually, I'm going to use this opportunity to plug my next episode of How to Skeptic, if that's okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I'm not sure when this will be coming out. So it's possible that episode five is already out. It's on the backfire effect. Mm. Um, turns mm. out it doesn't exist. Spoiler alert. Um, and 
I started writing this piece uh, with the assumption that it existed. And I was going to say, here's what it is. Here's why it happens. Here's how to control for it in an argument. Maybe work your way around it. So I was coming at it from this perspective of this thing happens. And as I was doing research, I was realizing, wait, if I'm going to be consistent in my requirements for proving a thing, this thing has not been proven. In fact, it's been pretty substantially refuted. And so the, the entire uh, video is basically me deconstructing something that I thought was true and coming mm -hmm. to the conclusion that in fact it isn't. And realizing that I was uncomfortable with that because I was relying on it too much. It had become kind of like the Romans 120 quote that Christians use where oh boy. they're yeah. able to say, oh, well, you you just don't believe me because yeah. you want to sin. You just want to sin. Right. I yeah. I was saying, oh, you just don't, you don't, you're not convinced by my argument because of the backfire effect. Like, okay, cool. Like I did everything I needed to do. I was perfectly articulate and explained myself wonderfully and you still haven't been convinced. Therefore it's on you and your brain is just not good. Sorry. Um, and realizing that I had been doing that and that I couldn't do that anymore kind of highlighted a place where I had been relying on something that was not skepticism and probably just poor epistemology. And what do I do with that now, right? Where do I go with that? What does that mean for me? That means I have to try harder, right? That means that I need to own when I'm not convincing enough because there is no evidence to prove that somebody can actually boomerang back around to their other their, their side of things when faced with a compelling argument. I so all my favorite people who operate in this space of public atheism and skepticism and humanism are are the ones who are sort of the most publicly just like thoughtful um, and who are open about their when when they confront their own biases and find out that they're wrong and stuff and 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 are just sort of out there with it and don't try to hide it. Don't try to act like they're, you know, smarter than they are or, or that they're infallible. Um, you know, and I, I love that you take that approach. Um, I'm going to sidetrack us for just a hot second. Um, I, I could have sworn that I saw online recently that you were like digging into a theology book that you were just yes. chilling, reading a theology book. Is this what you do in your spare time? You're just sitting consuming doing yeah. research yeah i mean it's fun it's it's what i like to do i was the kid at 14 who spent their day reading through the dictionary like starting at a <laughs> just reading through like it was a chapter book um so i don't know it's just been a lifelong <laughs> thing <laughs> uh are you familiar with a, a a writer and journalist named aj jacobs Oh, I love AJ. I love his book, the one where he reads through the encyclopedia. That's that's what I was thinking yes. of. Oh, yeah, such a good book. <laughs> yeah, the know it all. Um, know it all for for the the uninitiated. Uh, AJ um, is just a fantastic uh, human being. I got to correspond with him a little bit when I, I was working on on a literary journal in college, and I, nice. I I wrote about that book, and I like just emailed him thing, and that's this isn't going to go anywhere, and he he was just a total sweetheart to me, and. Um, but it, it's about, he, he reads through the Encyclopedia Britannica um, and tries to retain as much information as possible and, and talks about that experience. Um, it's beautifully written. Like it was riveting. 
Yeah. I was very impressed by that book. Um, but yeah, essentially that. That is. <laughs> um, and I'm very lucky that I have a partner who is interested in that kind of thing, because otherwise I imagine I would be insufferable. <laughs> do you do you have a favorite theologian? A favorite theologian? Uh, I, like other than Lee Strobel. Other than, yeah. Um, I mean, I have pet theologians that I like to pick on the most. That's the um, same thing, right? That's the thing. I, I am actually <laughs> fascinated by Alvin Plantinga. Oh, really? Yes, because he <laughs> has championed some of the most ridiculously complex and utterly awful theology arguments and, and apologetics and doesn't get nearly the love that uh, William Lane Craig does in the apologetic community, even though William Lane Craig essentially is saying pretty much the same thing. So me, I'm very interested in all of that. Reformed epistemology, uh, modal ontology, yeah. all of that is just... Oh, it's, Oh, it's so interesting to dive into, honestly. Yeah. I think William Lane Craig has better hair. I think that's the bottom. <laughs> that might be it. That it might be as simple as that. No, like, like no offense to the the Plantinga stands who may be tuning in to <laughs> this channel, but um I've got this like sharks versus jets thing happening in my head where like <laughs> the the, <laughs> the different factions of theologians. I, uh, I've taken like a hard stance against engaging with apologists. And, uh, I, when I was talking to somebody about why I, I like, I'm just not going to do debates in the future. And, uh, and I said, I've, I've never walked into a church and asked somebody, so why, why do you believe in God? And they go, well, I just find the modal ontological argument like so compelling. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Know, not Anselm, uh, Alvin's, you know, I, you know, that's, that's the one right. for me. And like I, I, I see the value. Honestly, if they if they know who Anselm is, they're already far ahead of the game. Like that would be surprising to me. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen, right? I mean, and I see the value in engaging with these ideas and, and engaging with the apologists and deconstructing the the terrible arguments that have basically just been rehashed for the last you know millennium. Mm -hmm. um, I just I just can't do it. I'm just so like I want to talk to real people. Yeah. Not that apologists aren't real people. I'm like digging a hole here. <laughs> but it, I just find it so frustrating. Um, well, you want to talk to to sources that are representative of the largest group yeah. in the population, right? And, and apologists simply aren't that. So I get it. Well, and, and I like and you said it earlier, the, the idea that, you know, just Googling why I'm right is a is is sort of a reliable way to be wrong and to open yourself up to all kinds of you know cognitive uh, traps. Yeah. And and it seems to me that that's what apologetics is. There's a starting point of I'm right, and I'm going to tell you why I'm right. Um, and yeah, uh, that and and you can be an apologist for anything. You can be an apologist for atheism, um, and and open yourself up to the same problems. Yeah, um, exactly. The thing that bugs me the most, I think, is that people again, like William Lane Craig, can give you. Well, here's it written out in like a logical formula for why God exists, right? Mm -hmm. And then you go, well, why do you, why, why is this convincing to you? 
And he says, well, because I have the inner witness of the Holy Ghost. Right. That's always the bottom line. Yeah. That that cannot be your bottom line if you're trying to prove something objectively. It simply cannot be. Um, And I actually did a video on that as well in heuristic thinking and why reformed epistemology and the concept of properly basic beliefs is utterly debunked by our advances in neuroscience. Uh, So that's kind of been my line recently, which is theology is great up until the point where science gives us a concrete answer. And then that is the answer you go with. You can't continue to hypothesize and say, well, what if, if we have the answer, especially if it concretely proves or disproves a thing right there, right? And that's what happens all the time on Talk Heathen. People will be like, well, here's the Kalam cosmological argument or the teleological argument. And let's pretend that science doesn't exist while I try and prove to you this thing using philosophy. It's like, well, okay, we can play that word game all day. And it's fun for me. I would love to do that. But also there's this entire body of knowledge that we're purposefully ignoring. So you get to play your game. I, so I've got this, this idea that I've talked about with a couple people privately and with go public with it for the first time. I, I very much in 2021 want to uh, begin a fund um, for sending people who come onto all these various shows that we appear on with their claims about creationism, about philosophy, about theology um, to be like, like, like it started with, with me talking to a young earth creationist and being like, if I could fund you going to a community college and taking an intro to biology course, would you do it? And then we can talk about this again in, in 10 to 12 weeks after you finish. Mm. And I, I want to make that happen. I think people would donate to that. Like this, the send a creationist to a biology class fund. Um, <laughs> I like that a lot, actually. That's awesome. Just to be like, we're going to get in the weeds if we try to talk about this right now. And I'm not a biologist. Um, but maybe you can go talk to one and see what they have to say kind of a thing. Um, yeah. So the final question, question number four, is we're, we're coming up on, our, on the end of our time, is um, what do you think is the most effective way to communicate the importance of sound epistemology and skepticism to people who might not see the value in these, these things? Mm. Who might not see the value? That's difficult because value is so subjective, right? And to try and impart your own set of values onto somebody else is very hard. And honestly, I would say, don't try to do that. Like Mm. somebody has their values for a reason, right? A person values certain things because of what happened in their life, because of their circumstances, their past, their present, all of that. So I would say that instead of focusing on trying to get other people to value the things that you value, make it accessible and not scary for them to try it out. You know, so instead of saying you should value the thing that I'm doing or the way that I see the world, you should be, hey, why don't we try this exercise? Or, hey, why don't we have a conversation? Mm -hmm. And slowly but surely, hopefully, people will start to come around and if not, you know, take on your worldview, at least understand that it is a rational one to have. Mm. So I would say doing what we do, right? Being skeptical in public and acknowledging when we mess up and explaining where that happened and going back and trying again and being just average people who are down to earth, who are welcoming and inviting, who are willing to talk about these things to anybody who wants to have a conversation. 
I think is the biggest thing that any of us can do um, because that's going to allow people who might end up valuing it as much as we do that first entry point into trying it out. Because if everybody is going to come across as this like know-it-all stuck-up person who knows everything and did years and years of research and you can't possibly touch me and my knowledge, that's not going to be inviting to anybody. Nobody's, they're going to look at that and say, oh, either I wish I were like that, but I could never be like that. Or look at that stuck up person and how detached mm. they are from reality. Neither is good. Neither is going to get you more people who are interested in skepticism. So be down to earth. Be honest when you mess up because you will. Uh, reinforce that everyone has a bias and needs to constantly control for it. And, you know, pursue skepticism publicly whenever you can. And the rest will follow, I think. I love it. I'm going to put links in the, the description for the video, but generally speaking, where can people find you? Yeah, uh, you can find me at my YouTube channel, uh, YouTube slash uh, V Rose LaBianca. Uh, you can also, if you're interested in what I do and want to see more, uh, support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash V LaBianca. Um, you can, you can see I've got like part of a studio set up here, but not nearly enough to be to, to, to make me feel like I've got a brand yet. So help me get a brand. Help me help me fund a brand on Patreon, please. Um, and then of course you can find me on the ACA shows, Talk Heathen, which airs every Sunday at 1 p.m. Central and Secular Sexuality, which airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. Central. Awesome, awesome. I appreciate you being here so much. I have found so much value in your work and I, I just hope that more people are just, you know, sort of funneled into your, into your channel and, and become aware of, of all the good that you're doing. Likewise, Ken. Awesome. And cut. That'll be it.